You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As you may know, 19th century candidates didn't go running around saying, vote for me, vote for me, but they did have trusted campaign managers. Who would take care of the politics? Seward, Senator from New York, confident of his party's nomination for the presidency of the United States, put his trusted advisor Thurlow Weed in charge. He was the best political mastermind in the country at the time. Along with Weed, Seward dispatched 16 railroad cards worth of supporters to the Republican convention in Chicago in 1860, while he waited like a good 19th century candidate in his home in Auburn, New York. The 16 train cars of supporters were complete with a marching band, and when they got off, they marched through the streets, bearing signs, shouting for Seward, and playing, Oh, Isn't He a Darling, a popular marching tune of that day. But when they arrived at the hall where the convention was being held, they found they could not get in. Supporters of Abraham Lincoln, that upstart from the West, had taken their seats. These kind of convention hijinks were common. Lincoln supporters had printed up counterfeit tickets. It shocked the Seward folks a bit, but enough of them managed to get in to give Seward a rousing cheer when his name was placed in nomination. He had the delegates, 70 from New York alone, another 100 or more from other states. To bring him close to that 233 delegate majority he needed, he was the front runner. The rest of the candidates, Samuel Chase of Ohio, Edward Bates of Missouri, the local yokel Abraham Lincoln, were just going to get a few votes. They were fractured. Boss Thurlow Weed, the convention veteran, was able, and he opened hospitality hotel suites to delegates. Champagne now, wealth in the future, was Weed's promise to pliable delegates. Weed was even aware of this local celeb, the rail splitter Abraham He knew that he'd get the delegates of his home state of Illinois, the conventions being held in Chicago, and he had a plan for it. Everyone knew that Abraham Lincoln was famous now for taking on Stephen Douglas, the little giant, the senator from the Illinois, the likely candidate of the Northern Democratic Party. Weed had a plan. 
He'd offer Abraham Lincoln the vice presidency, take the 22 delegates from Illinois, and along with what Seward had, the Seward-Lincoln ticket would roll over the fractured opponents. If today's battles for party nominations are stretched out over weeks and months, this is a rare area where the 19th century was actually faster. The action happened sometimes in hours in a crowded convention with yeoman delegates, powerful bosses, and maniac shouters who probably didn't belong there at all. The Wigwam was the largest one-roof building in the country at the time, and a crowd of 10,000 was the largest ever in one indoor assemblage in the United States. Everything was going to get decided here in a matter of days and hours, and just as today we look at surprising primary victories, then it was the ballots at conventions instead of state primaries. And in the first ballot, there was a bit of a shock. Of course, Seward won with 173 delegates, Just as expected, about 50 more in the nomination would be his. But Lincoln got 102 delegates, making him the clear number two in the race, making him what we would today call the not-seward candidate. The other rivals, Samuel Chase of Ohio, Edward Bates of Missouri, Cameron of Pennsylvania, they were unable to get far beyond the expected bases of support. Yet they held enough of the delegates away from Seward to deny him the majority. That is what today we would call the shocking last-minute surge for candidate Lincoln. But how did he do it? Well, he got those local votes as expected, but he also got another 20 delegates from neighboring Indiana who wanted a Westerner for president. Then he got some stray votes from states that the majority of those states were for Seward, but there were a few dissenters. But that wasn't all. Six of the delegates came from a place where the Lincolns had an ancestral home, the state of Kentucky. And 14 of the delegates came from the soon-to-be Confederate state of Virginia, though none of the delegates knew this at the time. A man named Alfred Caldwell of Wheeling, Virginia, now in West Virginia, was Lincoln's supporter, the head of the convention, and assured the majority of Virginia's delegates went to Lincoln. Later in the general election, Caldwell would raise a Lincoln-Hamlin-Liberty poll in Wheeling, Virginia. Not an easy thing to do in that state. Where polls were raised in other parts of Virginia in 1860, the militia was called out. Indeed, in that 1860 Republican convention, Kentucky, Maryland, Virginia, Texas, Delaware, and Missouri were states that would all vote against the Republican ticket in the fall. Two of them would enter open rebellion with the United States. The rest would become border states on the edge of joining rebellion. Yet their delegates participated in the choice of nominee. And as we'll see, not without controversy. Seward got a few votes from these states, particularly Texas, but for most ballots, they were hostile to him. Absent these states, his race to the nomination would have been easier. Might have won on the first ballot, hard to say, least by the second. Edwards Bates, uh, one of the rivals, would not have been a realistic rival as he relied on Missouri and Maryland. And Lincoln would not have had that incredible first ballot showing. But back to the wigwam. So what? Abe did well. Seward still had 70 or more delegates. If it was a race, Lincoln was way behind. A second ballot was then taken. But this time, Lincoln picked up Seward haters in New Hampshire and Maine. And after a backroom deal that was not authorized by Abraham, with Pennsylvania's governor to give him a cabinet seat, he won most of that state's delegates. Now the vote was Seward 184, But Lincoln got 181 delegates, and the crowd went wild. The convention president had to gavel the crowd of Lincoln supporters in this 
local hall to order. A third ballot is taken, and now Lincoln wins just barely with not only his original votes, the new votes from Pennsylvania, but now some votes from Ohio and votes from Kentucky, Virginia, Maryland, and Delaware, all of which he would need to win that third ballot. Without those states, there would have been a fourth ballot, maybe a fifth. Instead, with the delegates from these and with Missouri holding out for its local favorite son, Bates, Seward's hopes were ended. As we mentioned in the 1860 general election, Delaware and Texas, Virginia would go for Beckenridge, Kentucky for Bell, Missouri for Stephen Douglas. None of them voted for Lincoln. Though he had a nice showing in the German areas of St. Louis, Lincoln's best showing in the South. Lincoln won that election of 1860. The Republican was probably going to win the 1860 election. Lincoln was an unpopular president within his own party, almost lost his nomination battle in 1864 and the presidency. Was it right that some of these states, who couldn't carry their nominee into the fall election, helped to pick that nominee? Should Alabama pick a Democrat today? Should Vermont pick a Republican today? This is a question that might have some relevance in the 2012 primaries, and it's a question that was debated in that 1860 convention. This whole issue really came to a head when President Taft struggled to keep his presidency against a challenge from the ex-president Theodore Roosevelt. Taft had the backing of the Eastern Conservatives, the party bosses who didn't want Roosevelt back in. Roosevelt had the Westerners and the Progressives, and the party was split in half. Roosevelt was winning primaries, and he had the momentum. Unlike Seward, Roosevelt broke tradition. He was, well, I guess today we'd say a control freak. He was his own Thurlow Weed, and he showed up in Chicago, where the convention was again in 1912, and he personally directed the convention effort. Didn't enter the building, but was nearby. But it didn't matter. Taft had a secret weapon going into that Republican convention of 1912. And no strong-willed, charismatic speaker and no string of primary victories could beat it. Taft had delegates from southern states, places where, in 1912, were absolute no-man's land for Republicans. No Republican was going to get elected. Federal employees, commissioners, but they had no standing in their states. They were loyal to the administration. In some cases, they had a job from the administration. It was, as progressives complained, a brokerage corporation for patronage. And it got Taft three-fourths of his support at the convention. They were, as Roosevelt called them, Rottenborough delegates. Nobody insults like former President Roosevelt. But what the heck is a Rottenborough delegate? What is a Rottenborough? Well, it refers to the old British Parliament where seats aren't like the U.S. Congress today, not divided according to population. No, in the past, in Parliament, some towns would get representation where no one even lived, maybe because of a family that had a traditional seat, while cities and large villages went underrepresented or not represented at all. Rottenborough delegates, such as they were called, would refer to delegates from a place where the party had no standing. Rottenboro delegates led to a 1912 nominee who won only one state, Utah. Yet it's kind of an ugly term, and nobody called Rottenboro in 1976 when President Ford availed himself of the powers of the incumbency 
to hold on to the Oval Office in his party's contested primary. Nobody used that term, but Reagan did cast himself as a true Republican when he took on the president. Ford relied on states that were not normally viable for a Republican, would not be in 1976. New York, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, Connecticut were the places where he won victories over California Governor Ronald Reagan. But if the GOP primary were held only in states that Ford was able to carry in the fall election, he would have lost to Reagan two to one. If you look at the Democratic Party nomination process in 2008, you'll see that Hillary Clinton won California, New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Ohio, and Pennsylvania, the more Democratic states. Obama's wins kind of read like a GOP nominee's base. North Dakota, Montana, South Carolina, Alabama, Mississippi, Kansas, Nebraska, Louisiana, and Idaho. Idaho? Picking the Democratic nominee? No one really contested it at the time, and arguably nobody should. I suspect it's an issue that might be coming up in 2012, and I'll explain why. But let's go back to the wigwam in 1860, where David Wilmot, famous for his speech on slavery question, the Wilmot Proviso, well-regarded by the folks in this chamber, rose to question, as probably only he could, if delegates from Maryland or Delaware or Virginia, where slavery was permitted, should really be permitted to name a nominee of the Republican Party opposed to slavery. I don't question, Wilmot said, I don't question the integrity of these men. I don't question their motives. The simple question is, are the men from Virginia, Texas, and Maryland here as parties, really, or just individual Republicans? Further, Wilmot said, do 20 people meeting in Baltimore really compromise the Maryland Republican Party? It wouldn't be difficult to find 12 Republicans in Tennessee. You get the same reaction someone would get today if we brought this up most of the time. After Wilmot's speech, as respected as he was, delegates from Maryland rose to argue how, how dare we're not uh, represented here. Delegate from the District of Columbia said, we know how it feels not to have representation. You have to reach out to everyone in the country. But one of the Maryland delegates... Montgomery Blair, came up with perhaps a different way of approaching this. Third way. We of Maryland, he said, just want to be heard. We don't want to control the nominee at this convention. And Blair seconded it, the motion of Wilmot, and asked for some moderation of delegates. He wasn't asking for these delegates to be silenced, only that the convention decide what kind of representation they get, perhaps not as full delegates. Governor Cleveland of Connecticut rose to give what is the accepted view nowadays in the days of 50 state parties. We need to be all over the country convincing people of republicanism. You run everywhere, and therefore every state picks, even states that don't have a realistic chance of voting for your party's nominee. You might even win a few new states. President Obama won the North Carolina primary and then pulled the state in. Same with Virginia, pulled the state in, and they hadn't voted Democrat since 1964. For a while, the parties followed Governor Cleveland's very optimistic advice, right? Let everybody vote. But parties have finessed this a bit. We are now a lot closer to Montgomery Blair. And that was that, give us a voice, but perhaps consider how much of a voice you want to give us, and should it be the same as all the other states? The Republican Party is going to award states delegates 
according to the number of congressmen who were elected Republicans, how many Republicans are in the state legislature, is a Republican governor. They don't use the results of the presidential election in the past in any way. It's only based on legislative and gubernatorial party strength. The rotten boroughs, it would appear, have been bulldozed by the GOP. Can a candidate win by racking up delegates in obvious Obama states? The Jerry Ford special all the way to the nomination? It's a possibility. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Bruce Carlson here. I recorded this cast in 2012. I believe it still holds up well today, and that's why I wanted to post it again, because the same type of questions are being raised. In other words, can you get your support for a party's nomination from states that the party probably doesn't have a realistic chance of carrying in the general election? And this year, you're seeing it not only on the Republican side, in 2012, it was a question aimed at Romney, but now you're seeing on the Republican and Democratic side. Let's start with the Democrats first. On one hand, criticism from the Sanders campaign is that Hillary Clinton's delegates, the initial delegate lead that she received, has come from states that have very little chance of voting for Democrats in the general election. South Carolina, Alabama, Texas, Mississippi. But on the other hand, those are Clinton supporters or observers in the media, have noted that Bernie Sanders seems to get support from some of these caucuses and places out west, Idaho, Utah, Montana, that aren't likely to support Democrats in the fall. And also within states, if you take, say, Michigan, take Iowa, you take Missouri, which is a state that Hillary Clinton won, Bernie Sanders came close in, on a county level, Sanders is winning counties that Democrats can't carry in the fall, while Hillary's tending to win the urban Democratic strongholds. 
That's on the Democratic side. Now, the same questions again being raised on the Republican side. And it is very likely that if Trump gets to the Cleveland Convention with a majority, it is thanks to delegates from states that probably will not vote for the Republican Party in the fall. Delegates that Theodore Roosevelt might, might, I'm going to explain why it's a might, have termed rotten borough delegates. Romney needed them to fend off at the time it was Gingrich when we recorded this, and Trump needs them to fend off Cruz and the Stop Trump movement. It's a little different. You know, rotten borough delegates are a harsh word. I mean no disservice to the people who are doing a job, going to the convention and the like. It is just a historical term, and it's not exactly the same as, say, in 1912. In 1912, those Southern Republican delegates were really representing states that really had absolutely no chance of being carried by the party of the Democrats, carried the South from the Civil War up until the 1960s. That's not exactly the situation. Some of these states are turnable, and a GOP candidate could argue, I'm going to try to make a, a change. It's only in 1988 where a Republican was winning California. But as I re-listen to this cast, and I do that from time to time, I just note, and I ask you to note, that when you view in the various debates in Twitter or on TV and other places, that this same debate was something that was discussed in 1860 and 1912. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com and I'm going to plug something in advance. doesn't exist now, but I'm going to let you know about it, probably launching in the summer. And that is the Extra Podcast. This is a premium podcast for myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com listeners who want more content. It's going to consist of several elements. If you subscribe... It's going to be a reasonable fee, as low as $2 a month, depending on various membership levels. And you'll get some benefits for that, including transcripts and other things. And you'll get some benefits from that, including transcript recognition on the site and other things. It's going to include regular, rotating, archived podcasts. And some of these are not available on the web. I know some of my old podcasts are findable on the web. These are not. So you're going to get them... Rotate on a regular basis. I'm going to comment on some of them, as I'm doing now, based on current events. I'm going to have some extra cast as well. Some of them, I call it Carlson's Corner, will just simply be my take on politics of the day, whether it's related to history or not. Then, my ongoing project studying this year, the Revolutionary War, and analysis and commentary on that. And also, just some extra tidbits and kind of the remaining legal pad matter from some of the podcasts that you'll continue to hear on the regular My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. So if I have some extra information that didn't make it into the episode, or just a note about how what kind of sources were used, or how difficult a particular cast was to construct, and what some of the considerations were behind what I said, that's going to be available to subscribers to the extra podcast. Look out for it this summer. The technology is mostly set up. Right now, it's just getting all the content in place. Thanks for listening. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off. U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off 
wherever you get your podcasts.